We are starting a new teaching series. We were wondering about what to teach in the autumn, and we've decided that we're going to teach through the Gospel of Luke. And Luke is quite long, so we're actually going to split up into two halves. We're going to do one half of it between now and December, and then we're going to do a little pause, and we're going to do a series all around the kind of Christmas story and the nativity story. And then in kind of like in the new year through to kind of Easter time, we're going to pick up the second half of Luke. And um, there's basically two types of kind of preaching you can do in a church. There's, there's kind of thematic preaching where you go, hey, what does the Bible say about this issue? Let's talk about the issue, for example, of money or relationships. And you look at different scriptures and what the Bible says about that. And then at other times, there's a way of just going, just, let's just read through a book. And what is the Bible saying to us? And I think both approaches are appropriate. And I think in churches, the thing is you want to try and get a balance between both. So there are moments to do thematic preaching. You know, what does the Bible say about this issue of singleness or sexuality or relationships? Or let's just read through a book and let's see what the Bible is just saying to us. We won't shape it. We'll just allow it to speak, which means sometimes you hit passages, you kind of go, I'd rather not be speaking on this passage. But that's what you that's what you do. And we are going to do both in this church. And this one, obviously, this series is we're just looking at a book and we're just allowing whatever comes next, to speak to us and to see what uh, we feel God is saying to us through it. And we're going to jump into Luke chapter 3 because in December we are going to, if you like, go in reverse and go back into the story of the incarnation of Jesus' birth, of the foretelling of that, and obviously all the significance uh, around that. Um, Just as we get into the series, there's a couple of books I'd like to recommend Given that we're going to be in this for a while, we would encourage people to read a little bit about it. So the first one over here on my right is by a guy called Phil Moore. This is called Straight to the Heart of Luke. These are both quite uh, very accessible. They're not heavy commentaries. So you don't have to have studied theology to understand them. So Phil Moore, Straight to the Heart of Luke, or a guy called Tom Wright, Luke for Everyone. Both of these are really, if you like, easy access kind of basic commentaries but they're very easy access both of these guys are significant kind of brains so although they're writing for at a kind of layman's level they are they are able to operate at an intellectual level as well so what they what they're saying is built on some intellectual theology so it's good stuff so either of those um we would recommend a little bit of background to luke i'm not going to do a big tour of the luke's gospel you can read about it if you know the bible at all you may know that Luke, the, the same author that wrote Luke, wrote Acts, so both of those books. Scholars, as ever, argue about, well, when, when did this get written? Some people think about AD 70, so maybe kind of 40 years or so after the death of Jesus. Others place it about AD 60, but so within that first century, and quite a lot of people reckon that Luke was probably connected to the Apostle Paul. That's why you get what he says in Acts, that sense of sometimes he talks about we, us in Acts. So Luke maybe had some connection to Paul. And obviously, like all the Gospels, there's all sorts of themes. But one of the key themes in Luke is about the coming of the kingdom of God. Jesus keeps talking about the kingdom coming. And specifically, that the kingdom is actually open to everybody, not simply those from an ethical Jewish background. In a sense, the kingdom was surprising and And you'll keep finding this again and again as you read through Luke, this sense of actually the kingdom is for people from all backgrounds, all races, 
uh, and it is not dependent on, on your track record. In fact, sometimes the issue about having a really good track record that we think somehow proves how good we are is that itself is a stumbling block because it's a way of somehow self-qualifying ourselves. And you'll just find as you read through Luke that he keeps picking this issue up and even the passage we're going to look at today touches on that issue. So we're going to read chapter 3. It's a little bit of a long uh, chapter, but it's worth reading it all through. So in the 50th, 50th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria, and Traconitus and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, this is from Isaiah 40, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children uh, for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. And John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, What should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. And then some soldiers asked him, What should we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But then John rebuked Herod. This is a risky thing to do. The tetrarch, because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added to them all. He looked up John in prison. And when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now it's interesting, right at the start, just worth noting, Luke locates the story of John in Luke 3 in history. So he says, look, it happened when Herod and Pontius Pilate, he's locating it. He's, he's put it, he's like, he's doing a kind of historical thing. I studied history at university, I'm not quite sure why, but I did study history at university. <laughs> and, um, and he's saying, look, this happened in, in a real time, in a real place. It's not a fable, it's not a myth, it's not a nice story made up to make people feel better. He's saying this was a historical thing. And so it's just worth noting that he's doing that on purpose. He's saying, look, the Bible is a genuinely authentic historical document. 
And that's one of the things he's doing. And he says, all the people were coming out to John. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? There were people, they were waiting, they were searching. And I think, obviously, for the Jews, they had a kind of prophetic promise of a Messiah to come. One was going to come. They've been waiting for centuries. The prophets have been quiet for centuries. John props up in the wilderness. And suddenly they're like, maybe this is the guy. And they are waiting and searching. And obviously for most of us in the room, we don't have a Jewish history, but all of us come from cultures who are searching and waiting for something. Yeah, We're looking for something to answer all the questions we have. And although we don't talk about it in that way, effectively what you see in their race, we're waiting and looking for a Messiah, an answer to all our deepest longings. That is exactly what everybody in the world is doing. We don't frame it like that. We don't talk about it like that. But we are all searching. Every culture is searching. And, they're all, uh, and they look and come to John on that basis. Now, and it says, the word of the Lord came to John. Now, if you become a Christian, that is exactly what happens to all of us. Something of God's word comes to us and brings us to life. And the word comes to John. And John goes into the, the wilderness or comes, comes out of the wilderness and begins to preach. Now, just as an aside... John the Baptist, if you read about it, is not a kind of, he's not your regular kind of guy, yeah? You know, if John the Baptist joined our church, we, we may struggle to know quite what to do with him. Do we put him on the front door? I don't know. You know, I don't know if you brood of vipers is what we want people to say as they enter church the first time. You know, he's, he's that kind of guy. He's prophetic. He's slightly in your face. He eats strange stuff. He wears strange clothes. But, but God uses him powerfully. In fact, Jesus says of him in Matthew that he is like, if you like, there's no one born of men who is more powerful and significant than him. He's like the most significant, powerful, prophetic figure of all time. But, but he is a bit out there. And even in John, we have a picture that God uses all sorts of people. Yeah? He doesn't fit the mold. And yet God is using him powerfully. He's the most powerful, prophetic person in the Bible, actually. And his call, he says, is to prepare the way. And if you've ever read, how many of us have ever read the Narnia Chronicles, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Well, the picture in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe of Father Christmas, Father Christmas's job is to make, make the way for Aslan to come. So he is the John the Baptist figure in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, and that John's job is to prepare the way and to get people ready for the coming of the king. And Luke quotes Isaiah 40 in this passage, if you like, as the mandate and description of what John does. And this is what it says. A voice of one calling, John, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill will be made low. The rough ground should become level, the rugged places are plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. Note, all people will see it together. This is what John does. He is preparing the way. Sarah and I have friends uh, in the UK, and his background is in the RAF, so he's in the kind of Air Force in the UK. And apparently in this last couple of weeks, they were at a kind of RAF club in central London with some other people. And apparently there was a bit of a commotion going on. All the staff were looking a little bit nervous because in walked Queen Camilla, who's obviously married to King Charles. 
and they were all getting ready, you know, for Queen Camilla. Now, Queen Camilla doesn't really have any power, really. She's just Queen Camilla, right? But they're all kind of getting ready, preparing for this important person to come in. Well, John's job is to get people ready for the king to come. And Tim Keller, who speaks on this passage brilliantly, and uh, a lot of what he says, if I'm, like, if I'm honest, have super helped me understand this passage better. Keller talks about, if you know of Tim Keller, he's now sadly passed away, but was an American kind of pastor and writer. Um, he talks about this passage. He says, you have to understand in ancient days, when a king was traveling somewhere, it's not just that they sent out a herald to say, the king is coming. Everyone, you know, get your best clothes on. They literally had to make the roads for the king to come because the king would be traveling with all their entourage. And in the ancient world, roads generally weren't made. They were just kind of worn by tracks, right? Because the horses or the carts had been traveling, they just get kind of, you know, worn into a certain rut. Well, obviously, a, a generally a road like that can't cope with the king turning up with its entourage. So to, for the king to arrive, they literally had to send out the engineers to make the roads. They literally had to prepare the way. And so Isaiah in Isaiah 40 and then Luke here in Luke 3 is saying, no, there's, there's a king coming and there is certain preparations that have to happen in order to receive the king. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places are plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all the people will see it together. So John is saying, look, John comes with a mandate to get people ready to receive Jesus. So if we want to understand how to receive him, Actually, what John the Baptist does in Luke 3 is a really good picture of how do we receive Jesus? And in summary, what John is showing to us is you only receive him if you receive him as a king. Now, lots of people in the world have opinions about Jesus. Some people don't think he's a real person. You know, it's just made up. Whereas actually, there's loads of historical evidence that Jesus was a real historical person. There's more evidence for that historically than there is for loads of history that I got taught at university. Right. So there's huge evidence in Roman history to say Jesus was a real person, really did exist. There was someone called him who did his thing. Okay, But people have all sorts of opinions. And some people can go, oh, yeah, I think Jesus existed, but you know, he's a nice moral teacher. You know, he's a bit like Gandhi. You know, he's a, you know, he, or, or some kind of like religious person who said some nice teachings. And they, you know, some of them we kind of don't really get. That's a bit weird. They're a bit out of date, but some of them, you know, they're nice, love people, and yeah, he was a good person. Some people even think maybe he was a holy person, a prophetic person, we're happy to accept that. Uh, and people have all sorts of opinions. They feel like they kind of adapt Jesus into, yeah, I'm happy to accept that he was a good person, or that he had some wise things to say, or even some prophetic things to say. I had a friend of mine at university who I remember her saying to me, you know, I, I think the Bible is a beautiful book. <laughs> and I was like, have you even read the Bible? Like, there's some really difficult things in the Bible. I wouldn't describe the Bible always as a beautiful book. No, it's a really beautiful book. What she was really saying was, yeah, it's just a number of very beautiful old classic texts. And oh, there we go. I'll put it there. Okay. And John is saying in Luke 3, you can't receive Jesus as a good person, 
or just as a holy person or someone who has some nice, interesting things to say that we can kind of adapt into our worldview. Yeah, that's a good thing. I like what he says about tolerance. I don't really like the winnowing fork reference in Luke 3. I'm not so keen on that. So we're just going to like park that side of it. We don't really want to think of someone bringing justice or judgment. That sounds a bit heavy. We've kind of grown out of that in the modern world. Right, so we're not doing that thing. But I like the thing he talks about loving people. That's good. And we want to compartmentalize Jesus and put him in our box and go, he says these things. I like that. But um, that's the stuff we just, we've all kind of grown out of that a little bit. And John's saying, no, 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 no. No, the only way you receive him is if you receive him as a king. And if you're going to receive him as a king, there are certain things you have to do. You have to get ready. There are certain things that, matter in terms of how if you are going to receive him and again Tim Keller has a brilliant phrase when he talks about that he says basically if you're going to receive Jesus as a king it's meaning that you come to the realization that you are more wicked and I am more wicked than I could and we could possibly know but also that we are more loved than we could possibly ever hope for if you're going to receive him you have to come to the realization that we are more fallen, more broken, more wicked than we could possibly ever have imagined. But we are also more loved than we could possibly ever hope for. That's how you receive him. And metaphorically, if you like, if you think of that picture in Isaiah 40, and there's lots more I'm sure you could preach out of Isaiah 40, but it talks about valleys being brought up, mountains being brought low. There's a sense in which we have to be brought completely low before we can be raised up if you're going to receive him there's a sense in which we have to be completely humbled before we can be raised up part of receiving Jesus as a king is to understand how completely lost we are how far away we are how even our best efforts don't qualify in fact often our best efforts make it even harder for us to receive him because our best efforts to lead a moral life are often our own way of trying to qualify ourselves. It's our way of trying to self-save ourselves. Look, look at all my good stuff. Look at, look at my heritage. And that's why John says to the Jews showing up, goes, don't even begin. <laughs> he says, don't even begin to talk to me about your father Abraham. Like, don't even start. Like, they, they kind of go, no, and he goes, stop. It's like, like, but would you, no, stop. Don't even start trying to tell me about your heritage and how your heritage qualifies. You don't even stop. Don't. There's a sense in which we have to be completely emptied of all the things we think are going to qualify us. Not my good stuff. My good stuff actually often gets in the way. But look at all. Paul goes, like, I treat that all as rubbish. Even though I was a Jew of Jews, Pharisee of Pharisees. And now I realize, actually, now that's not to say that living a good life doesn't count for something. But it doesn't qualify you in any way. So in one sense, we have to be completely brought low. Completely humbled. In effect, we have to stop believing that we ourselves are king. <laughs> if you're going to receive Jesus as king, you have to stop trying to be king of your own life. Right? You have to give up control. You have to surrender. And John calls them both to repentance and also to baptism. Now, you could preach for several weeks on both of those subjects. Okay? But just really briefly, what is repentance and what is baptism? Well, repentance looks like what they then go on to say. Because they say to him, well, what do we do? What do we do? He says, what if you've got two coats? Like, give one away. Stop ex- taking money and stealing money from people. Only take what you need. He, 
he, he points towards things they should do. We kind of go, ah, oh, that's what repentance is. Repentance is changing behavior. That's repentance. Well, actually, no, at its heart, repentance is a change of our hearts. In fact, if you look back in Luke 1, when the angel speaks to Zechariah and says, you guys are going to have a baby, he says the call on your son is he's going to turn the hearts of the people. That's the call on John. He's going to prepare people for the coming of the king and he's going to turn their hearts. That is ultimately what repentance is. It is a turning of our hearts. And John's call is to turn their hearts. And that's why John says to the people as they're coming out, no, 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 bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, a changed life is the fruit of repentance. Changed life is not itself repentance. Repentance is a changed heart which gives fruit to a changed life. So you need to repent. You need a new heart. And that is why Jesus in John 3, when Nicodemus comes and says, what do I need to do to be saved? He goes, you need to be born again. What do you mean I need to be born again? Such a weird idea. You know, Jesus is saying you can't modify your own behavior. I mean, you can modify it to a degree, right? We can all go on a diet, maybe for a while. We can maybe do a bit more exercise. We can kind of maybe stop smoking or we can, modif- we can do behavior modifi- you know, modification, right? But fundamentally, we cannot change the thing that's bearing fruit in our lives, our hearts. And John is saying, you basically need a new heart. And there is one coming who you need to receive who will give you a new heart. You need to receive him as a king. In other words, you cannot get yourself fundamentally into the place. You need to receive him and allow him to do it in your life. So you need to repent. And then he says you need to be baptized. Now, baptism... Different ones of us will come from different church backgrounds. We'll have probably different views on baptism and who's, what age is that for and all that kind of stuff. But baptism, if you think about it fundamentally, is about being clean. Yeah. So if you spent all day working outside or you've been out for a run or you've been cycling or whatever it is. Okay, sun's coming out this week, by the way. Which means at times you're going to go, I need, a, I need a shower, right? If you have teenage kids, you often think, they need a shower, okay? Because, like... People get, they need to get washed. And baptism is, you need to get washed. In other words, to receive the king, you need to, you need to get clean. Baptism, if you like, is a symbolic act, and it is a symbolic act of getting clean. If you're going to receive Jesus, you have to understand you are receiving him as a king on his terms. Prepare the way, make straight paths. He says, John says you need to repent, you need to be baptized. You have to receive him on his terms, not on yours. You have to understand how completely broken you are, how completely far away from God you are. Okay? And then notice this. John is saying, this is for everybody. It's interesting. He says the crowds are coming out. It's not even just the Pharisees. The crowds are coming out. And the first thing John says to them is, you brood of vipers. Okay, he doesn't go, welcome to church. You know, like, this church has existed for about a year. I don't think we'd exist at all if our first opening Sunday, you know, if you go up on a Sunday, it's like, you brood of vipers. Why have you come to church this morning? Just, have you tried? I haven't tried. I'm not sure we're going to do it. Okay, but that's John's opening words. And he does it very on purpose because particularly those from a Jewish background understood 
that when he talks about a viper, he's referring right back to Genesis and Genesis 3 and what happens with the serpent. Now, if you're a child of Abraham as a Jewish person and then someone accuses you of being a, a child of the devil, it's like, hold on. And he's, he's totally undermining. No, no, no. Your, your heritage doesn't count for anything. So he says, you brood of vipers, why have you turned up? The Jews were used to the ideas of Gentiles getting baptized. If a Gentile person wanted to become Jewish, they had to be baptized. All right? So for the Jews, they understood, oh, okay, yeah, this, this Gentile person, they want to become Jewish, they need to get baptized, that's fine. But John says, all of you need to get in the water. Okay? All of you. you in, it's no longer us and them. It's no longer, oh, we're the in people, you're the out people. It's no longer... I'm the holy person, this is the person who's a bit broken. and It's none of that. John goes, no, 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 it's a, this is, we're going to completely redefine this. This is him and us, all of us. And the first thing John says is, you're a brood of vipers, all of you need to get in the water. All of you. And then I want you to notice, and this is where we're going to close with, I want you to notice who shows up. Who are the interactions that Luke records? Two groups first group he records are the tax collectors. Tax collectors and soldiers. Soldiers, they reckon, probably were more like the police in this passage. Those are the two he records. Okay, tax collectors, you will know this probably, but they were collaborators with the Romans. That's why people hate them so much. That, they would be like people in the Netherlands during Nazi occupation who collaborated with the Nazis and sold out their neighbours, got them sent off, let them knew where the Jews were. They're those kind of people. Right? Those are the kind of people who are making money off the occupation. So you can imagine how much people hated them because they're collaborators. I mean, they're scum, right? And yet, there they are. They're the first in the queue and they're the first ones to get recorded as asking a question. And Jesus keeps doing this. Even in John's ministry and in Jesus' ministry, he keeps redefining, oh, no, no, no. Yeah, they can come. They're, 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 they can come. They can come. They can come. And then it's the police all right? Or the soldiers. Yeah, they can come. So it's for everyone. So it's, it's a strange thing. Even right at the start of Luke, it's like what you see is the gospel is completely exclusive. You can only receive him as a king. Right? There's no other way. Jesus says, you can't just think I'm a good person. You can't just think, um, you know, I've got some moral teaching. You just bolt me. It doesn't work. I'm not. I don't. But if you receive me as a king... If you accept who I am, and therefore who you are, if you repent and be baptized, then you can receive. It is totally exclusive. The world hates that. At least Western secular world hates that. They hate the fact that Jesus says, there's no other way except through me. You know, the world wants to hear, yeah, all roads lead to God, and you can kind of make God in your, it's fine, you know, whatever you believe, that's fine for you, and it's fine for you. The world wants to hear that, and the gospel's like, just not, it's just not true. Jesus goes completely exclusive. You either receive me as a king or you don't receive me. And yet, at the same time, it is completely inclusive. And he's like, but if you receive me as a king, anyone can come. And your track record, your history, your, the, your track record of all the things that you are most ashamed of don't count against you. Or the track record of other people that you think really shouldn't be allowed in does not disqualify them. 
So it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you didn't do that you should have done. It doesn't matter what your family heritage is. It doesn't matter how well you have or haven't done in your relationships, in your history. It doesn't matter what family you come from or what class you come from or what ethnicity you come from. It doesn't matter. If you receive him as a king, then it says anybody can come. It's completely inclusive and yet radically exclusive all at the same time. So even the tax collectors, even the collaborators, even the soldiers, even the enforcers of an occupying ruling force can come. And they're first in the queue. It's radically exclusive and radically inclusive all at the same time. So we're going to pray. And I just want to encourage you. We're going to use a song or two maybe at the end. And I just want to encourage you, if you felt like God is speaking to you, if you thought like, yeah, I have often felt like an outsider that I do not somehow qualify. You understand that is not the gospel and you're believing something which isn't true. And I think God wants to work in your heart that you understand it's not based on you, it's based on him. So let's stand together. I'm just going to pray. And maybe uh, the musicians and the singers can come back. That'd be great.